0: Welcome to Deepak Casts, a podcast series from the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center at the University of Notre Dame. My name's Ted Barron. I'm the executive director at the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center, and we're launching a new series as part of Deepak Casts with this episode, Indie Film. I'm currently teaching a course on Indie Film here through the Department of Film, Television, and Theater. And as part of this series, which begins with episode one— Uh, we'll be looking at significant works from the history of American independent film beginning in the post-World War II era Uh, following through the boom of indie film in the 1980s and into the 1990s, and then all the way up through the digital revolution of the 21st century. Each week, I'm going to focus on a different film discussing its production history as well as uh, some of the systems of distribution and exhibition, which provided uh, alternatives to the ever-dominant Hollywood machine. Uh, We're also going to touch on questions of race and identity as indie film is a great place where we see more women, LGBTQ filmmakers, people of color um, afforded the opportunity uh, to have their stories seen and heard. It's a really great collection of films. And hopefully this will give you some inspiration to seek out uh, some of the works that we're, uh, that we're gonna be discussing. So I said that we'd be discussing one film a week, but we're gonna actually start off with a two-for-one special um, with, two, uh, with two significant films from the early phase of, of indie film history. Um, Little Fugitive, which is a 1953 film directed by, uh, co-directed by Morris Engel, Ruth Orkin, and Ray Ashley and John Cassavetes' 1959 film Shadows. So we'll start with Little Fugitive. um, And to get to Little Fugitive, it's important to kind of consider uh, the roots of this film, which is the workers' film and Photo League, uh, which was a collective of Uh, photographers, filmmakers, and other activists who were based in New York in the 1930s. And they were very much interested in kind of documenting um, kind of the struggles of of, uh, life in the city at the time. Uh, largely uh, made up of Jewish immigrant uh, uh, filmmakers and photographers who focused um, very intently on the experiences of African-Americans in the city. And within that um, evolution of the film and photo league, we see a kind of tension that builds up between filmmakers who wanted to document uh, kind of as directly as possible the um, experiences that they would bear witness to uh, versus those who were interested in more kind of taking a more creative approach and trying to use elements of uh, storytelling to uh, kind of give life uh, to people's experiences so that um, they could be more engaging and, um, uh, you know, be more effective in, in connecting with um, viewers and audiences. Um Morris Engel was uh, one of the photographers associated with the the latter the the later version of the uh, Photo League, um, although he had always been interested in filmmaking. Um, He and uh, Ruth Orkin were both uh, very accomplished as photographers. Engel had had, uh, developed his skills shooting uh, uh, during World War II. Uh, Ruth Orkin is probably best known uh, for her photograph, An American Girl in Italy, uh, which is a a photograph uh, of supposedly of an American woman walking down a street in Italy while she's being catcalled by uh, a group of men who've uh, in in various locations am- along the street um, it's a it's a photograph that's gotten a lot of attention because of the seemingly spontaneous moment that Orkin captured, although she later revealed that the whole thing was staged in order to to kind of capture the image that she the, that she had hoped to um, uh, create. Orkin and Engel met at a photo league lecture in 1947. Uh, they were later married, um, in 1952. And it was while, uh, Morris Engel was developing a new film project, uh, which was which ultimately became the film um, Little Fugitive. So, Little Fugitive um, takes. Uh, Engel was among um, among his many influences were um, Italian neorealism, and what he found in the Italian neorealist film movement was just a sense of spontaneity in the way that it, it was able to capture. Um, the lives of Italians at that moment of the at, at the end of World War II, uh, when people were facing great hardship, uh, but also trying to find ways to rebuild um, after the war, and so he he tried to kind of take a similar approach to what he saw in those films uh, when he started to plot out the idea of um, the, the ideas that are uh, reflected in Little Fugitive. So the story of the film uh, it centers on two brothers. Um, who are left uh, home alone by their mother when uh, she reveals to them that she uh, that her own mother, their grandmother, is sick and she needs to go care for them. Now this is early 1950s New York City. Uh, these are two boys who are being cared for by a single mother. Um, this is not a family of means by any stretch. And essentially these, these kids are left to kind of take care of themselves. Well, Lenny, who, who's the older of the two boys, wants nothing to do with his younger brother and in fact, um, you know, recognizes that, you know, his younger brother is kind of cramping his style with his uh, friend group. So Lenny and his friends concoct a scheme uh, to trick Joey into thinking uh, that he's done something unthinkable. Um, and I won't reveal what it is because I think it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of compelling moment within the film. But it causes such a strong reaction within Joey, who's played by uh, Richie Andrusco, that he decides uh, that his only uh, hope is to run away to Coney Island um, and see if he can kind of find a life for himself at Coney Island. Uh, from there, there's not a lot of plotting to the film. Um, there's very little dialogue. The script, uh, the script for the film was actually fairly minimal, partly out of practicality, uh, recognizing that uh, the actors within the film had never had never performed before uh, cameras, and so they wanted to uh, kind of think about ways to make uh, their performances as natural as possible. So one way to do that is to take out uh, to take out any any dialogue. Um, not that there's no dialogue, but it's just it's it's quite minimal. Um, and essentially, what we see for a good uh, the majority of the film is uh, this boy Joey um, hiding out in Coney Island, although hiding in plain sight as he's uh, kind of taking in all that Coney Island has to offer, which at the time was, you know, a great had it's a great amusement park. Um, we see carnival games that Joey gets to play. Um, he indulges in um, cotton candy as well as other, you know. Uh, Uh, amusement park treats. Um, Really having a great time uh, while he's kind of processing something uh, very, very uh, traumatic in his life. but what's interesting is how the film kind of follows this experience and the techniques that are used, not only with the, with the film's minimal scripting, um, but the fact that they used a particular shooting technique that allowed Joey to really kind of run wild and, and have, have a great time doing so. So the film, it's shot on location uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, one of the techniques that they borrowed from the Italian neorealists was to use non sync sound recording. So all of the, any of of the dialogue that we do hear in the film, and as I has noted, it's fairly minimal, uh, was recorded in post production. So it's a non sync sound recording. Um, and the film also um, is noted for its incredible technical innovations um, because one, one of the things that Engel wanted was to be able to sort of follow Joey around without kind of intruding on his experiences. So he consulted uh, with a, a friend, Charles Woodruff who helped to develop a portable 35-millimeter camera so that he could essentially carry the, the camera around uh, while, uh, while Joey was you know, sort of running through the park. Um, this is essentially a prototype of what we now know as the Steadicam. And it allows um, uh, Angle to really capture some just wonderful moments, uh, not only of Joey, but of, of uh, the sort of other f- people that are in the park who were regular park goers. This is you – know, this wasn't – they didn't close down the park for, the, for this film shoot. They essentially filmed while people were um, – you know, while other people were going – having a, a day of entertainment um, at the park. So this combination of uh, formal innovation and loose, spontaneous uh, storytelling uh, uh, ultimately proved to be he, uh, highly influential. Filmmakers like Martin Scorsese uh, have have talked about the film in terms of its very honest depiction of life in New York, a New York that he recognized uh, very directly in the film as opposed to a sort of Hollywood uh, vision of New York. Uh, Francois Truffaut uh, declared that our our new wave, as in the French new wave, uh, would never have come into being if it hadn't been for the young American. Uh, Morris Engel, uh, the the great French film critic André Bazin, praised this work as well. Um, but what's interesting is is the the impact that Engel and Orkin's work had on uh, practitioners of documentary film, in particular the Direct Cinema movement, which was the sort of American wing of the cinema ver the development of cinema verite in documentary practice in the 1960s. If you're interested in documentary film, I encourage you to, to go back and listen to our, our last series on uh, Deepak casts documentary Factor Fiction where we touch upon uh, some of the work of the of the direct cinema filmmakers. But among them were uh, Albert Maisels and D.A. Pennebaker um, who, uh, for whom Engel demonstrated this new camera um, and they ultimately they sort of took the ideas that um, that Angle had accomplished with this camera to design a sixteen millimeter camera that would also be portable. But with their but with their intention was to make sure that there there was uh, an opportunity to to record sync sound uh, since that was always an important aspect of those of those productions. Um, Richard Leacock, who's also associated with um, uh, with the direct cinema practitioners um, went on to write about um, Engel's film work. So after after Little Fugitive, um, uh, Engel had a fair. and Orkin had a fairly limited uh, film career. Uh, they the two collaborated on uh, uh, their next film, Lollipops and Lovers, um, and then uh, Engel's third film he made on his own, a film titled Weddings and Babies, and it was this film that um, really impressed Leacock, who said that uh, he was he was wowed by the fact that the camera was able to go anywhere with a a minimum of uh, preparation and delay, uh, techniques that would also be incorporated into this uh, emergence of cinema verite in documentary in the 1960s. Um, Another uh, person who cited the influence of Little Fugitive uh, was the, uh, the person who's often called the godfather of independent cinema, and that's John Cassavetes. Um, by the late 1950s, John Cassavetes uh, was a reasonably successful film uh, and television actor. Um, he had just uh, appeared in uh, appeared in a leading role in the film um, Edge of the City, um, but he was interested in but becoming increasingly frustrated with the process of production and the constraints of Hollywood film production. So he sought out opportunities to make films on his own. Um, so using his own money, uh, Cassavetes began shooting a new project in 1957, which ultimately took another two years to complete. Uh, the film, Shadows, centers on the lives of three African-American siblings facing challenges in life and love among uh, this really interesting uh, group of uh, New York City hipsters circa you know, 1957 uh, 259, depending on when uh, the scenes were recorded. So, among the siblings are Hugh, who's a struggling jazz musician, and he 's desperate to move beyond the burlesque circuit, which you know is seen as kind of lowbrow and and become you know and really be thought of as more of a serious musician. Uh, his brother Benny, uh, who's also uh, a less uh, a less ambitious musician, spends his nights trying to meet girls in bars with a group of his friends. But also seems to be struggling with, you know, trying to find meaning in his in his life, and then their younger sister Leila uh, is a would-be writer uh, whose life becomes complicated when one of her. Uh, would-be suitors, uh, mistakes her uh, racial identity as white. And this is part of the drama of the film is, you know, you have the character of Hugh, who's more dark-skinned. Uh, Benny, uh, who's, uh, because of uh, the black-and-white cinematography, it's unclear whether he's, he's light-skinned or not. Leela is clearly identified as, as a more light-skinned member of the family and, and enough so that she could be mistaken as, um, as white uh, instead of black. Um, which causes its own kind of dramatic tensions. Now, these narrative threads could make for really compelling melodrama if Cassavetes wanted to go that route, but he takes more of an observational approach, also kind of akin to the neorealist traditions. Cassavetes loved neorealism and, you know, found a lot of inspiration in filmmakers um, like De Sica and Rossellini. However, it would be a mistake if you— tried to classify this film as realist, Um, you know, despite the fact that it it has this reputation of being um, this very kind of of uh, slice-of-life movie uh, shot on the streets of New York. It actually uh, uses a lot of uh, sound stages for many of the key scenes within the film. Um, But more importantly is... um, I mean, the the stylistic elements of the film, which includes the shooting technique and the acting styles of the film. Um, uh, like Engel and Orkin, Cassavetti shot the film using more portable uh, technology. In this case, it was a 16-millimeter camera that he had borrowed from fellow filmmaker Shirley Clark, um, who um, we'll, we'll come back to her and her significance relative to this, uh, this period of American independent filmmaking. Um, uh, uh so this this sixteen millimeter camera that he borrowed from Clark allowed him to kind of work with the actors and um, shoot them in ways that you know again kind of suggested more of a kind of spontaneous. Uh, experience. Um, the other aspect, which is a little bit confusing, is that uh, Cassavetti's experimented with with his actors and originally shot the film as an, imp- as an improvisation, which is noted in the somewhat misleading uh, closing credits. Uh, there's a title that says, the film you have just seen is based on an improvisation. Um, but the fact is, is that that improvised version of the film Uh, was something that Cassavetes wasn't totally happy with. And although he did uh, print it and and, uh, briefly release the film, um, he decided that he wanted to go back and reshoot it, despite the fact that people like uh, Jonas Mikus, another key figure of this of this era of uh, independent filmmaking, um, who was a filmmaker in his own right and also a curator uh, and critic, uh, praised the film. Uh, Mikus had praised Shadows for its for its groundbreaking techniques, but Cassavetes wasn't happy with it, so he decided to go back and work with a screenwriter um, and script some new scenes. He brought the cast and crew back together, shot hours of new footage, and then the version that we see today is is. Ultimately, um, a version which takes about half of the footage, half of its footage from the original shoot, and then half from the from the reshoot. So J.J. Murphy, who's a great scholar of independent film, um, has written about Cassavetti's work, and uh, in his book Rewriting Indie Cinema, um, he talks about the fact that Cassavetti's process of improvisation was not one in which the actors ad lib their lines. So the the misconception about uh, improv is that a director maybe gives the actors a kind of a sketch of an idea, and then the actors sort of work their way through the scene by making up lines as they go along. Um, that's not the process uh, that Cassavetes employed. Um, following Shadows, he made two unsuccessful studio films um, that he really wasn't happy with and decided that going forward, he was going to purely make films on his own terms, uh, make uh, largely independent films. And in that process, he developed, uh, he developed a new process in which he would work with his actors in the rehearsal stage on the development of the script, which was ultimately uh, the basis for uh, what would be his more even more critically acclaimed work in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, so, the actors would essentially you know give him feedback about ideas about the character they would sort of build the character collaboratively and then a script would come out of that which would then be used uh, for the production of his uh, future films so um So among those films uh, were his 1968 film Faces, uh, which earned him an Academy Award nomination, nomination for uh, Best Original Screenplay. Also, a couple of the actors were nominated. Um, A Woman Under the Influence, uh, which features a tour de force uh, performance by Cassavetti's wife and muse Jenna Rollins, who also was nominated for an Academy Award. Um, And essentially, you know, with the success of these films... Uh, Cassavetes was able to continue to sell fund fund his work through, uh, throughout this period by taking um, acting gigs in films like The Dirty Dozen and Rosemary's Baby. Uh, but what's really um, kind of the lasting impact of Cassavetes is that he established this model, whether, uh, you know, whether it was coming from actors who wanted to direct or uh, people who didn't have those kinds of resources available, but uh, even you know, setting up a process in which you know, a lot of his films were self-funded. Um, those later films... Uh, he uh, w- would be shot at his home in Los Angeles. Um, so you can see, you know, if you follow Cassavetti's work, you can see some consistencies not only in terms of the troupe of actors that he works with, but also that familiar um, house uh, that that's used as the setting for a lot of his work, and you know, suggest suggests some new possibilities for what for what can be accomplished in what Cassavetti's had hoped to achieve, which was just to make a series of films, as he would say, about love. Um, Cassavetti's work and um, uh, Morris Engel and Ruth Orkin's work um, are among the influences which spur a kind of new movement of cinema. Uh, that's, that's based in New York in the, in the early 1960s. Uh, the New American Cinema Group, uh, which was actually founded in 1960 by, among others, Jonas Mika's, who I referenced as, you know, the critic who, who praised the early version of Shadows. Shirley Clark, uh, who we also talked about in, in our last podcast series, Documentary Factor Fiction. Um, Peter Bogdanovich was kind of part of the early discussions around uh, what became the New American Cinema Group. And the ideas of this group really um, became manifest with the release of a manifesto in 1962. Um, so, kind of referencing the successes of uh, films by uh, films like Shadows, uh, as well as the work of Lionel Rogeson, who we could do a whole other podcast episode about uh, his films on the Bowery and Come Back, Africa, um, employ similar uh, techniques. Um, Pull My Daisy, which is a more experimental piece by Alfred Leslie and Robert Frank. these These films were suggesting a kind of new approach to filmmaking um, and inspired this group this collective of filmmakers, critics, uh, and others to you know suggest a new set of ideas. and among them, uh, were to establish uh, a sort of a self-funding system for filmmakers, so that profits, any profits that were made uh, from films, could be reinvested into new films. Uh, this is largely through the ages of the Filmmakers Co-op, uh, which is uh, which becomes a very prominent distributor of primarily avant-garde film, uh, but also kind of associated with uh, this emergence of independent cinema. Uh, in the early 1960s, also the establishment of the New York Film Festival, uh, which becomes uh, an important uh, venue for uh, releasing films. And as we talk about different films in this series, we're going to recognize the significance and importance of film festivals and providing a platform for a lot of uh, work to be seen. So these are considered kind of two early influential works as we as we go through uh, the, the subsequent films in this series. We'll um, definitely see filmmakers who reference um, some of the techniques that um, Engel and Orkin and Cassavetes uh, employed within their work. But we'll also see filmmakers uh, finding um, new ways of, of conceiving a film, partly because of audiences that they hope to address that maybe were underrepresented um, and subjects that um, that they thought were important to bring to light. So. We will continue our discussion of indie cinema in our next episode of Deepak Casts.